Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside is located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Good morning. Today's text is it's, it's very deep theologically, but it's a simple text. It's only three verses. And I'm afraid we might get out early. And you would be disoriented for the whole day. This is going to be simple, okay? Uh, I don't like the way I did it. I don't like the way it came out in the first service, so I'm going to be playing with some thoughts today and uh, do it a little different and think through it a little different, but uh, very casual. Just want you to sit back and think about um, this sort of off-putting text. Like, what in the world does it mean? Especially at the end when it says, the crowd delighted in it. You're like, what were they delighting in? Because I have no idea what he's talking about. You read that text and you just wonder what's going on. Now, we're in the book of Mark. We're just into, toward the end of chapter 12. And one more week in chapter 12. Remember, when we get to chapter 11, from 11 to chapter 16 deals with seven days of Jesus' life. That's it. Well, here we are in the middle of the week. It's Wednesday. And uh, ever since he's gotten to Jerusalem, there has been nothing but controversy. And everything is centering around who is Jesus. That's the critical question. It's not just... For the people of Jesus' day, who Jesus was talking to. It's not just for the readers of Mark in the early church. It's for us. We've got to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? It will solve everything else. N.T. Wright, uh, a theologian that I enjoy reading, said this. The question about who is Jesus, he says, we're forced to ask it. I mean, you could be sitting here and you may, it doesn't matter what background, it doesn't matter how well you know who Jesus is, but you're forced to ask the question, who is he? And here's what he says. We're forced to ask because what we do know about him is so unlike what we know about anybody else. I love that. Jesus is the kind of person, lived the kind of life, did the kind of things, said things that set him apart from anyone else you've ever known. And because of it, you're forced to ask, who is he? And of course, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that's the question on the table. Who is he? And we'll see, he shatters our categories. And he's about to shatter the category of the religious leaders. All of their categories. And as a result, you have to think about the categories that you have him in. That need to be shattered. Now, Jesus prevailed in all of the arguments that were uh, sort of that he entered in with these religious leaders. And, of course, they tried to trap him now four times, and we've seen that. And you remember at the end when, uh, when we got to uh, this verse right here in chapter 34... Uh, No one dared ask him another question. I mean, it was pretty much done there. We simply can't catch this guy up. As smart as we are, as much as we know, 
as much authority and power we have in this temple because that's where they are. We cannot trip this guy up. And so no one dared ask a thing. But even with that, even with Jesus, and by the way, hasn't it been great to see him argue? Uh, I mean, it's great to see Jesus argue. It's great to see his logic. It's been fantastic. But I got to tell you, it's not enough. It hasn't been enough. As great as it's been. In fact, look what Jesus says. One of the guys who's listening, the scribe, who asked him the last question about what's the greatest commandment. Look what Jesus says about him. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So we have sat around here in this temple and we have had tremendous debates. And it appears Jesus has pretty much dominated all of them. But it hasn't actually got someone all the way to the kingdom. So I want to just draw you a little visual so that you have this in your head. So here's this scribe, and it represents all of the, all the people. And you see him, and he's asking these questions that obviously are, are moving him closer to the kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, let's, let's put it here. And of course, you've got you to gotta understand the kingdom. I mean, that's what Jesus was started out preaching, and this is what he's preaching. And essentially, we're talking about the rule of God. The fact that he rules. He has a realm and he rules over it. And what you see is that this, the scribes and these religious leaders, they just have all these barricades that they've got to crash through to get to this kingdom. And Jesus has crashed a few of them and has helped this guy a lot. But he's not, but he has not crossed over yet. And so the question in the text is, man, what does it take to get over there? I mean, Jesus has argued, he's done all these things, he's appeared dominant. What does it take to get in there? And what does it mean to be in there? And up to now, Jesus has just been defensive. He's just been defending himself against there. And that's been helpful. But now Jesus has to go on the offensive. Because evidently, there's some piece missing. Something's missing that's keeping these people from crossing over. And that's what this very, very simple text does. Uh, and at first glance, appears a little bit confusing. But the message in it is absolutely profound and sets us up for Easter coming here very soon. I mean, next week we celebrate Palm Sunday. That was just two days ago in Jesus' world uh, that we're in right now in Mark. So uh, we're right in the season for this, for this section of Mark. Because Jesus goes on the offensive, and you ask yourself, if Jesus gets to set the agenda, what's it going to bring up? Right? I mean, so far, the questions have been coming at him. But what if he gets to set the agenda, what's he going to ask? And he's going he's to do two things this week in the end of Mark uh, in our next time. is He's going to confront their theology, and he's going to confront their religiosity. And by the way, they go together. However you see God, that's how you'll carry out your, well, whatever, whatever you think it means to be spiritual. If you don't see God properly, then, you, then you're going to, you may be wasting your time. And that's what Jesus is going to show. So, 
he asked this question. So while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, and by the way, now Jesus has become a very common figure in the temple. The temple, he's been there since he got there. Uh, Well, of course, he's been there since he got there. Remember on uh, Palm Sunday, he rides into town, spends the night at Bethany, wilts the tree, remember the fig tree, and then he heads into the temple. He hadn't left there. He's a common figure now in the temple, and it's Passover week. So it's, the city's just filled with people. People are catching a glimpse of Jesus who haven't. They're hearing him who haven't. And he's right there in the, set up right in the middle of the temple. And people are starting to see and hear him. And so he says to the group now, how is it, or what could it mean, on what basis is it that the experts in the law, the scribes, you guys, say that Christ is David's son? Now remember, Christ is really Christos. It's a title. It's a title. It means Messiah. Okay, the promised deliverer. How is it that you guys say that the one that's coming to deliver us is David's son? You say, what kind of question is that? Well, this sort of builds off a premise that everyone there would have completely agreed. Because everyone knew that the promised Messiah came from the line of David and his descendant. Because that's the Davidic promise. You say, what's the point of the Old Testament? You need to understand the Old Testament because you could see how Christ is the fulfillment. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and how they overlap each other. It's incredible. It gives me chills. Can you see? It gives me chills because the Davidic covenant is, is amazing. And to see how Christ fulfills both of them is overwhelming. So they all understood, all the Hebrew prophets, uh, and the Old Testament itself, understood that a Messiah is coming. He will be Jewish. He will be Davidic, come from the Davidic line, and he will rescue Israel from all their enemies. And, of course, if you know the history of Israel, that's, that's been the story of their life. Just dominated. Somebody's got to rescue them. Bring righteousness. Bring what we haven't had. Peace, finally. And if you'll read 2 Samuel chapter 7, which you ought to be familiar with that, because it's, the, it's where the promise comes that someone in the Davidic line, he says to David, long after you're gone, one of your descendants is going to come and I'm going to give him a kingdom that's going to last forever. That's the promise. Of course, that gets carried out and teased out in your Bible. The basis of that promise becomes the basis of the Old Testament. Why the stories? Why the people? Why all the issues? All to show that Christ is coming from that line. So everyone would have known this. And so he's got their, he's got their attention. Yeah, we all know the Messiah is coming from David's line. So then Jesus quotes a psalm. He says, why do you say he's David's son? David himself. By the Holy Spirit. So this was Old Testament Psalms. Inspired writing. David himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies 
under your feet. You're like, okay. So he's going to quote Psalm 110. Now you're looking at that and you go, what, what is going on there? Because he's going to say after that, David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? So you can see Jesus has something up his sleeve as it relates to the sonship of Jesus. Jesus has something up his sleeve related to that. Now you go, what is it? Well, let's go back. Let's look at it. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now this is Psalm 110. Let me tell you something about Psalm 110 that you're going to love. It's the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Jesus and the early church all quoted Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament passage. All to vindicate who Jesus is. So you can see the question on the table about who Jesus is. Jesus is trying to get at it with the use of this psalm. It's a profound text. So what what does he mean? Well, let me just draw you another picture. Here's David. David is the one who understands. What does it mean David said? Psalm 110. So David obviously is the one who has put together the psalm, the, the one behind the psalm. David understood the prophecy, the, the promise that God, my Lord, that's who my Lord is. This is where it gets confusing. The Lord said to my Lord. Well, who's the first Lord? The first Lord is God. Okay? That's Yahweh. That's what it is in Hebrew. When you read it in English, it just says the Lord and the Lord, and you go like, well, who's the Lord? Okay? In Hebrew, this is Yahweh, the first Lord. So it says, David said, Yahweh said to Adonai, that is the king. Now you say, what's going on there? Well, Psalm 110 was read every time a new king got inaugurated. Every time a new king, you read Chronicles and you read Kings and you see all the kings in Israel's history. Whenever, whenever a king was inaugurated, they read this psalm because it was a theocracy. God is the one who was in charge of the king. And so they would read this psalm. So David is pointing out how this works. God puts someone in charge. And they would read that every time they had a king. So that, that's essentially what the psalm is saying. Even David himself. But here's the unique thing that you might not catch that Jesus is pointing out. How is it? So this, and we know that this king has to be what? In David's line. It has to be David's son. Right? Isn't that what he said? How is it that David is calling this guy son? Well, that's not that complicated because he's got to come from the Davidic line. He's got to be Jewish. He's got to come from David. David's exact line. He's got to be a descendant of David. How is it then, the psalmist, or the, uh, Jesus asked, that he calls him my Lord? The Lord, God, said to the king, Adonai, he says, my Lord. Everything hinges on this little pronoun right here. You're like, what is that about? Because here's the deal. In a patriarchal society, no father 
would ever say of his descendant or his son, he would never call him my Lord. That would never happen. And you think about your own, I have four sons. The only time I've ever said my Lord to my sons, it's always followed by how in the world did you get into that mess? Okay, you would never say my Lord. So that's starting to trigger something in their minds, especially when you think, think about this. Okay. Uh, by the time we're reading this, think about the fact, this is just a simple historical fact. In 586 BC, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, is, remember, um, trounced upon by Babylon. And so the, the monarchy ends there. So 600 years before Jesus, there's no king. So who are we applying? Who are the Jews applying Psalm 110 to? Well, it becomes a messianic psalm. It obviously has to be talking about someone coming in the future. Some special, unique, regal figure who's David's in, in David's line. It has to be talking about it. Someone that David would say is my Lord. Now, David was the greatest king. Israel had. No one was a better king than David. And so for David to call someone his Lord, another king his Lord, was just crazy. And that's why Jesus points it out. If David is calling him Lord, he must be submitting to his authority. He must be more authoritative than David. That's Jesus's, that's Jesus's angle. He must transcend Davidic lineage. He must be superior to David. Now you say, why is that important? Why is Jesus bringing it up? And why is that important to the people that are listening to him? Why, it is, it, why is it important that this Messiah, this promised one, be more authoritative than David? Why is Jesus alluding because here's the thing. They had a category of the Messiah, of this promised one, that was inadequate, and Jesus is about to shatter it. See, their category was along the lines of, obviously, it's a Davidic descendant. That means he must be a human figure. He must be a human figure. He will destroy Israel's enemies. I mean, they're desperate for it. And restore peace and righteousness. This guy will do that. And here's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is essentially saying is he has to be more. He has to be more than David's son. He's got to be more than... David has called him Lord. He's got to be more than just a descendant of David. Now, you say, well then... Well, what's the implication? Who's, whose son is he? In fact, Matthew is the one who actually asked the question because that's what they'd be thinking. Well, if he's David's Lord, he's got to be more than his son. So the question then, because you can't really understand it unless you're Jew, unless you understand uh, Jewish history and understand their 
promise and prophecy of the Messiah, you're, you're saying, well, then whose son is he? Answer that question, and you have answered everything about who Jesus is. Well, whose son is he then? And that's what Matthew asks. And that's the question that they would have been asked. Now, this changes everything. Now, you, you think about this. We're just talking about some guy in the Davidic line who's going to come? What would he do versus what would he do if he were actually God's son? Would that change anything? Now, think about it. I know you're not in the mood. You don't, you don't have it in your eyes at all. Okay? It's daylight saving times. I get it. You better believe that changes the picture. Well, what would he be like? And what would he come to do? You see, that's the question. So if David is talking about somebody better than somebody bigger, somebody transcendent, then what does this mean? Because it can't mean only what Israel thought it meant. Because if it's God's son and he's going to sit at his right hand, that means he's equal to God. He's a co-ruler, a vice-regent. He has the supreme authority in the world, not just over Israel. This has implications far beyond just Israel. Far beyond. So his authority and his rule would be far greater if it's God's son. And then what would it mean if the enemies are put under the feet? Then the question becomes, well, who are the enemies? See, if you're Israel, then the enemies are Rome or whoever's dominating them at the time. Whatever nation is in charge of them. But if you're God and you're sitting on a throne in heaven and you run the universe, the enemies expand it's God saying the problem is so much bigger than you see it. God had to send his own son to solve it. Do you see that? And, of course, the implications of that are phenomenal. It changes everything. So uh, listen to what one writer said, and I like you. See, the reason Jesus wasn't the sort of king that people wanted in his own day is that he was the true king. Is this... This concept would change everything if it's God's son. He was the true king. They had become used to the ordinary, shabby, second-rate sort. They were looking for a builder to construct the home they thought they wanted. But he's an architect, and he's coming with a brand-new plan that would give them everything they needed, but within a completely different framework. They were looking for a singer to sing the song they had been humming for a long time. But he was a composer bringing them a brand new song to which the old songs would form at best background music. He was the king all right, but he had come to redefine kingship around his own work, his own mission, his own person, his own fate. In other words, Israel, your dreams for what God's going to do in the world aren't big enough. Your dreams aren't big enough. 
God has something in mind that goes way beyond what you're thinking. Now, that's like God, isn't it? Isn't that like him? That's like him. Now, let me show you. What does it take to accomplish this? Okay? And this fits right with our season, Easter approaching. Let me take you to two texts. Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts 2, after Jesus rises from the dead, after Israel kills him two days from now on Friday, Sunday, there's the resurrection and then there's a time elapses and then Acts 2 when Peter preaches the first sermon after the resurrection. What's Peter going to say to the people who just killed God's son? Here's what Peter does. This Jesus, and he had just explained, this Jesus that you killed, God has raised him up and we are witnesses. So then, exalted to the right hand of God, there's the, there's the rule imagery, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Of course, that's Acts 2 and all the wonders, signs and wonders that occurred. Now watch. For David, now he comes back to David. He's got to connect this to David for these Israelites. For David did not ascend into heaven. It wasn't David. It couldn't have been David himself or even one of his descendants. One of his literal ones. Of course, Jesus comes from the line of David. But it couldn't have been David. But David himself is the one who said, The Lord said to my Lord. He must have been. Here's Peter saying, David must have been talking about someone bigger than him. Someone bigger than the line. Because he says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David, you remember what David was saying in Psalm 110? Here's the bad news. The one you've been waiting to come has come. That's the good news, actually. The bad news is you just killed him. Can you imagine? What would you feel like right there? You just killed them. But, okay, of course the resurrection. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, watch, both Lord and Christos and Messiah. He's Messiah, but he's more than Messiah. He's Davidic, but he's more than Davidic. He is the ruler of the universe. That's who he is. And how did that all happen? What had, to, what had to transpire for that to work? There had to be a resurrection. He had to rise from the dead to fulfill that prophecy. If you have to rise from the dead, what else did you have to do? That means what God had to do to put the enemies that we have under our feet is die and rise again. That's God's plan. Only God could accomplish it. Now, think about this for a second. Because here's 1 Corinthians 15. Watch. 
1 Corinthians 15, in another resurrection text where Paul's explaining the resurrection, look what he says. For he must reign. This is after he rose from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. He's reigning. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is what? It's death. See, here's what, here's what Jesus is saying in this moment. <laughs> Your problems are bigger than you think they are. Your issues, death, sin, evil, they're far greater than you think they are. And someone, just some human figure from the line of David could never solve them. In fact, Israel, and in fact, he's pointing to these very religious leaders. And he's saying, you are part of the problem. You have the problem that I need to solve. It's greater than you think the problem's out there, and if I get rid of Rome, you're going to be fine. But that's not true. I've got to solve a bigger, deeper, internal problem in your heart, in the world. And it's going to take death and resurrection to do it. Because these are the kind of enemies that have to be defeated. Now, so, so what's, what's in the air? You'd think, oh, wow. So they're asking, so Jesus says, how, how, how can he be called his son? He, you know, he's, he's, he's God's son. That's the point of this. Now, the crowd is in delight because they're just, at this point, they love, hear, they love hearing Jesus. But there is no answer. So this, this whole issue that we just raised is just hanging over everyone. But no one, no one really wraps their arms around it and solves it immediately. It's as if Jesus just wants you to think about something. And here's what he wants you to think about. And here's the two most important questions about this. We could, this is it. If he's got to be God's son, what do you think he would look like if he came? Reflect on the fact that I have been in public ministry now for three years and ask yourself, do I look like somebody that could be God's son? See, Jesus is saying, you guys are so skeptical. You're so skeptical. You've got your tight categories. Isn't it possible that if God showed up, he could actually shatter those categories? Couldn't he shatter those categories? Now look at my life. Look at my life. Do I look like somebody that could be God's son? Think about everything I've said. Everything I've done. My whole ministry life. Every encounter we've had. Miracles I've done. Don't you think I might be that guy? See, the question becomes, who's Jesus? And Jesus is forcing them to reflect on the fact, well, if God was going to send his son, what would he look like? Jesus is trying to say, it's me. It's me. Uh, I was listening to, uh, uh, <laughs> in fact, I got I to gotta, I gotta show you this. Reflect on this. I'm God's son. 
right? Here's this. Uh, I came across this. It's a quote by Bob Dylan. I am the Lord thy God is a fine saying, as long as it's the right person who's saying it. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. Now, I don't recommend Bob Dylan for all your spiritual... But this is a great line. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying. I am God's son. Now, you check out and see if I'm the right person to be saying that. And by the way, this, this means that at the end of the day, there's not one argument that's going to win somebody to Christ. I don't care what it is. Science, academic. It, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you get all those questions answered if you want. It's all going to come back to Jesus, and you're going to say, is he the one? Because if he isn't, what do you have? At the end of the day, it's going to come back to him. Is he the one God sent to save? Now, here's the second question. Here's the big issue here. Uh, and, well, this is, what a, this is what I heard a skeptic say, and I like it, thinking about Jesus being the one. Uh, a skeptic who had sort of done the academic route writes this. I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. And at the end of the day, that's got to be everyone's story. I don't care how smart you are, what your background is. At the end of the day, this has to be. I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. Jesus is full of surprises. But they all are the surprises of perfection. He was tender without being weak, strong without being coarse, lowly without being servile, conviction, full of conviction, without being intolerant, enthusiastic, without being fanatical, holy, without being pharisaical, passion, Without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step. No one has ever been able to even propose some word that Jesus ought to have said. Jesus is saying, look at, look at me closely. I fit the bill. And if I fit the bill, I have what, you have been, what I have been describing here. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is God's son, and he has that kind of clout and authority, here's the second question. We answered who Jesus is. Then the second question that you have to ask is you're relating this to your own life. You've got to say, who at the end of the day has the authority to save me? Who has the authority to save you? Because that's the question you ought to be asking. So when you think about all the religions in the world and the things that sort of resonate with your heart, I know, I know people who are really into karma. Um, I know people who are a lot into things. And all those sort of things, just, they just sort of resonate with your heart a little bit. Well, hey, karma shmarma when, when funeral time comes. Karma shmarma. Who has the authority to over death? Then. Hey, listen, if you're sitting in here and death isn't one of your problems, then you're fine. Go with karma. I recommend it. I think it'll be good for your life. But if you're headed to the grave, 
you, don't you, don't you, ought, don't you think you ought to ask the question, who has the authority to, to solve that problem? That's what Jesus is saying. The resurrection is going to solve it. Now, Jesus leaves the question hanging in the air because just a few days from now on the weekend, he's going to rise from the dead and it'll be crystal clear for them, for us. It's already clear. He has risen from the grave. He is the only one with the authority. What does Peter say in Acts? He rose from the dead. He was exalted to the right hand of God. To him was given the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who pours out what you see. He pours it out. He's the one who gives salvation. He's the one with the authority to grant it. Only him. Only he has conquered death and sin and evil and the grave. He's the one that has the authority to pour out salvation to someone. That's why the early apostles always said, there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved because no one else has beat the grave. If you haven't beaten the grave... You don't have the authority to say. And so you say, well, what's keeping these skeptics from coming in? Of course, they got lots of complicated issues. But at the end of the day, a lot of times, skeptics who appear very, very bright seem to ask the right questions, seem to have answers. And because they question things, they're viewed as smart sometimes. But at the end of the day, skeptics have agendas too. And one of those agendas is, I don't want anyone else to rule me. I don't want anyone else to have authority over my life. And how many people do you know who know lots of things? You say, what's keeping them from crossing over? Do I understand who Jesus is? Do I understand that he has complete authority to save me and complete authority over my life? A lot of people don't want him running their life. But at the end of the day, if he is in charge, if he really did rise from the grave, if he does sit at the right hand, if he is Lord of everything, why wouldn't you want him running the affairs of your life? And that, at the end of the day, is the question. So you're still not in the kingdom. You want to know why this guy's still not in the kingdom? He's got a lot of things out of the way. But he's still got to come to grips with what God is doing and realize that really the Messiah is just God's son who he loves. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, not Israel, not just Israel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, what? Son. The motivation was love to solve all the issues of the world, the enemies that will ultimately be under the feet, his feet are all of the enemies, not just Israel's. And so that's why you got to listen, even before. And of course, this is Mark's argument. And I'd have to go all the way back to the beginning of the book, which starts with. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's how it starts. Then Jesus, when he's baptized, is announced by God as, this is my beloved son. And then you go through the book and you see all the demons realize it's God's son. And then Peter finally says in chapter 8, when Jesus says, whom do people say that I am? 
And Peter finally spits it out. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Ah, Peter got it. And now we're at this stage in his life and no one else has gotten it. Jesus raises it here. Do you know the next person to get it in the book? It's one of the Roman centurions who killed him while he's still on a cross. He hasn't even risen from the grave yet. Just by watching him hang on a cross and watching what he said and what he did when he was there, this centurion who stood in front of him saw how he died and said, truly, this man was God's son. And that's what Jesus said. Just watch me. Just look at me. I know you're smart and you know it. Just look at me. Just look at me. That's his argument. That's Jesus' argument. See who I am. I'm God's son. And realize that I'm the one who has authority to save you. That's the message. That means nothing else can. And your problems are much bigger. And this is what he's going to say in our next meeting. He's going to look at them and say, so all this religious stuff you're doing is not going to help you. It's not going to help you. And Jesus gets the meanest you'll ever see him in our next text. Because he despises how religion blinds to the real needs of people in everywhere. And it was only God's love and his act to send his son that reveals the problems of the world. And you realize those problems are yours and you can't solve them by yourself. And you need someone with authority to do it. And God is saying, that is why I'm here. That is why I'm here. To solve that problem. But it's more than that. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you say, you know what? I look at this and I think, you know what? I've never surrendered to his authority. I've never looked at it that way. I've never asked the question, who has the authority to save me? And go, I need to be in that kingdom. I need to be in that rule. And of course, if you're a believer today, you've got to realize that now all of a sudden, because of what Jesus is offering, God has opened up his kingdom to you. And anyone who's fully open and humble can have it. Your life can be integrated into God's in a moment, right now. So I want to challenge you with something. You say, I have crossed over. If you haven't, you need to address that today. Today. You need to solve that. But if you have crossed over and you live over here, then you've got another question, and it's the same question. Who is the authority in your life? Who calls the shots in your life? Like when an issue comes up in your world, and you wonder if you should do it or you shouldn't do it. Or maybe, let's just put it this way, and then, and, then, and then I'll close and we'll pray. Perhaps this week, you could go through the week, and you could say this tomorrow morning. You say, what, what could be the focus for me for the week after listening to this? You could say, you know what, God? I understand that you're in, you're in charge, and every affair that I am dealing with in my life, you're in charge of. 
And even though the enemies of the world still live here, and you live in an evil world, you still live in a world that's not politically right, you live in a world that's not socially right, you live in a world that's not morally right, you live in a world that's not physically right. We all do. But you could say to God on a regular basis, because you're under his authority, you could say to him, God, I'm listening to how you want me to deal with that stuff in my life. And what if you woke up tomorrow morning and every morning and every night before you went to bed, you said to God, I'm listening. I'm listening. Please speak to the things that are going on in my life because I want to do what you want me to do in them, as painful as they might be. If you want me to let go of this world, I'll let it go. If you want me to accept the fact that maybe I've been diagnosed with something and I got to leave this planet, I'm going to do it. If you want me to solve this problem in my home, fix this thing, whatever it might be, you just say, God, I'm I'm listening because I want to hear your voice. If you really run this place, and there's a lot of voices, and here's the thing God will do for you, and this is what I long for in my life. This is what I want, and I bet you want it too. God has a way. Psalm 23, this is where he says, I've prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. That just... You mean, how possible is it you've passed by dinner time with God on matters of your life? Yeah, I know, you've got a massive enemy in your life. Come, sit down with me. Let's eat. I have this. I have this. That's that's what I want more than anything else. I want to sit at that table. And I got to tell you, the times I, I pass it up, I, I you know, stick my head in the door and I go, Hey, I got lots going on, man. Eat without me. I'll catch up with you tomorrow night. How many times have you done that? If he's in charge and he sets the table, let's every night, every morning and every night, let's have that dinner and let's figure out how God wants to do things and let's do them his way. Can we do that, Hillside? Father, come before you. Longing, desperate for what it is you prepare. For your children to handle their reality in their worlds. And I just pray you'll help every single person in this room this week to say, God, I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to sit with you, to listen. In the worst possible scenarios of my life. I want to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you would come here. You would be willing to shatter all of our categories because you loved us and you knew what our real problem was and you came to solve it. And you did it by giving your life. But now, but now you've risen and you're in charge of everything. 
and you love us and you want to have fellowship with us, God, draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, why don't you stand up? We're going to get dismissed. It looks like we're about one a minute. I don't know. Maybe we didn't get done early. I don't know. Maybe we didn't. Okay, next week's Palm Sunday already. It's hard to believe. And then the week after that's Easter. And we're doing something we've never done with a one o'clock service. So like, uh, like you heard earlier, I mean, you can, just, you can just maybe a lazy bum on Easter. And you could be, you're going to come to the service full. You're not going to have to worry about food. So that service will go till 4 o'clock. I hope you're ready. It'll go till dinner. All right. Uh, but you have a great week till then. Uh, be listening to what God might have to say to you to th- this week. Have a great week.